Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest, my guest, my guest today is Jeff <laughs> Jeff Gordon. There is that pronounced correctly? Yeah, that was pr- that was pretty close, Brian. Thank you. I for mean, that. you're about to do a bunch of listening, <laughs> and I'm I, nobody really knows. Sometimes I get the <laughs> French pronunciation, but I, that was lost centuries. ago. How do you it's, say it? We say Gordonier. Gordonier. It's been, it's been Jerseyfied at this. So point. that's fine, Jeff yeah. Gordonier. That's your name. Yeah, dude. That, that's it. Who has the distinction? Jeff's a, uh, been a writer in in New York for a long time at magazines like Entertainment Weekly and Details and Esquire, where he now uh, writes. And um, he's written about all aspects of culture. He and I first encountered one another in the early to mid-90s and uh, have sort of loosely known each other and of each other since and have connected most heavily um, in his writing about food, which is what takes up a lot of his time. Uh, I don't often have journalists on the show, but Jeff... That's a good idea. Jeff it is. I think it's for my own and everybody's protection. <laughs> you have a, a couple distinctions, dude. One is that you are beloved in the world of food, which is a very difficult thing for a food writer to be. Is it true? I am? I hear. I mentioned, you know, I'm, I'll mention your, your name to someone like John Gray of oh, Ghetto yeah. Gastro. and and. Right, that's what he said. Oh, I love Jeff. Not that either of us knew how to pronounce your last name, but he loves you anyway. <laughs> we could both spell it. Um, and, and, dude, you've written a book. You know, I love reading great books about food and what food means and why, why we care about chefs. And I also love really personal books about uh, when someone takes me on a journey where I learn a bunch of new shit, but largely, mostly what I learn is about what the writer has gone through, especially when what the writer's gone through is sort of uh, twinned with the subject of the book. And, you know, this is why I loved reading Liebling's um, books about boxing and food, why I love reading Bourdain. And I'm really happy to say that I think your new book, Hungry, uh, is right in their class, man. Wow, thank you. Well, this was great. Thanks so much. <laughs> we'll see you around. No. But, man, that's I, really nice. I mean, I, I, I will say this. I wrote, I wrote a book. A book came out 11 years ago, X Saves the World. It was sort of this slapdash Generation X manifesto. And it was largely eviscerated by critics and didn't sell that well. Had a few good passages, but it was written too fast. It wasn't very thoughtful. And so I was kind of paralyzed after that. I was like, oh, my God, that was brutal. You know, I went through all this yeah, agony with a newborn in the house. My son Toby is now 13. And um, so I was kind of frozen for a while. And then and I finally spent essentially five years working on this. And Ruth Reichel loved it. Danny Shapiro loved it. Bill Buford, who wrote Heat, you know, one of the Yeah, another book. incredible I mean, book. Yeah. It's actually starting to get, like, advanced reviews. Publishers Weekly gave it a star review. And I, I honestly, Brian, I'm 52 like I don't know how this feels. It's really it's a it's very satisfying at this age after years of work to have people seem to genuinely love something you wrote. Like it so I'm not just I'm I I just wake up sometimes like I can't believe that. Uh, anyway, I fully relate to it, you know, um because well, I have a few things to say. One is I I fully relate to it because you know, I was 49 when Billions got greenlit, I think, wow. and we made the show at 50. I'm, yeah. I just turned 53 this weekend, so oh, happy we're birthday. thanks. We're the same. We're in the same spot, you yeah. know. And and I listen. I, I'm not gonna pretend like David and I didn't have a good run for a long time <laughs> doing what we do. On the other hand, having what's certainly like the biggest 
success of our lives and the most yeah. the one that has the biggest cultural impact. Yes, in it our, defines our moment. In our, does. thank you, but yeah. in our fifties, right? It does land for me so much heavier than if it would have happened in right our thirties because you it makes you not feel so crazy, right? To have done this with your oh, life. I mean, if I'd if I'd had any sort of praise, money, or anything like that in my twenties or thirties, I would have squandered it and pretty much self sabotaged my life. I think, like, probably the universe was protecting me by making me wait essentially thirty years to, to feel like I made a real breakthrough. Uh, yeah, it is, and you know, at this point, I have four children, and um, actually, I think also the experience of just just being older and having a lot of bumps along the way in life, um, all that filtered into the book, and it it's, it sort of informs how I wrote it. I tried to make it less. It's not really just hero worship about Rene Redzepi. It's more uh, realistic and kind of cold eyed. I think. Yeah. Well, and don't you think that in a way you. Like it could be the universe looking after you, but but in a way, isn't it that you were finally at a place where you were ready, yeah, to get all the bullshit out, yeah, and to risk actually trying to do your best work, like to actually take the risk of going like fuck it, I'm I'm gonna give everything I have to this because I I felt that on every page. Oh, well, I'm sentence. glad that that is the truth, actually, because because um, as I started to get to know Rene, I, I told him I feel like there's a, a book here in in what you're doing because he was risking everything at that moment in his career. He was blowing up the original Noma. He could, Noma was largely seen as the most influential and possibly best restaurant in the world. He could have coasted on that for 30 years. Instead, he decided he's going to blow it up build a new one, do pop-up in Australia, one in Japan, one in Mexico, create this whole wild food initiative in Denmark, all these crazy things all at once, just destabilizing his own life. And he's, you know, he's got three daughters whom he loves. He's, you know, and I met him at the very moment, really like I checked the first email. It was like a week after I'd moved out of the house um, that I shared with my first wife and my kids. Because that's what the book is I was in a terrible place. I was very devastated emotionally and um there were there were certain developments that probably had to take place in my life but they're extremely extremely painful to go through for everyone and um so as i got to know renee and we we were having this kind of ongoing dialogue texting emailing i'd spend my own money and go to denmark spend time with him i realized that we we were both at this point of reinvention and risk and um when I decided to do the book, I left the New York Times, you know, so I got a book deal and decided to pull the trigger. And I'd been at the New York Times six years. Being at the food section of the New York Times, is it's kind of the crown jewel. I mean, you know, and, and Julia Moskin, Kim Severson, Melissa Clark, they're like family to me. I loved the work I was doing, uh, working with extreme... Though, though, though your friend from the Times who, who, who stiffed you on showing up at, at Noma, that, that guy can't be among those. Oh, Grant Gold. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, I, 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 I just decided I'm exactly what you're saying. Like, I want to leave something behind that's almost like the culmination of everything I've wanted to say. I want to leave something behind that's not just articles. I mean, that maybe that sounds pretentious or something, but I thought I'm going to risk it, leave the Times, and write this book, come hell or high water, you know. And then, um, and actually, after I'd made that decision, Jay Fielden from Esquire called me and like, you want to be part of our team. But that that was not the original plan. The original plan was just jump out of the plane. No, you know, I, <laughs> I rarely have also a, like um, 
authors who who I know a little bit who send me their book. You know, when when you and um, when you wrote me and said like I've written this book, can we read it with an eye toward the podcast or whatever? Oh, I yeah. I I remember being like. Fuck, you know that feeling where it's like I gotta read this, and what if it's? What if it's you didn't want to. <laughs> what if I don't dig it? Yeah, and like, what, I appreciate that. What's gonna happen? And then you know, I, I I wrote you when I was, and then I didn't read it for a while. Like I couldn't read it for a while, and then I wrote you once I started because thirty pages in, I realized what you were doing, and and what you were doing was, it seemed to me, you were. You were doing the thing I loved the most in a way, which was saying, like, here, I'm going to open up exactly who I am at the beginning of this thing. Mm. And I'm I'm not going to – I'm not going to make it self-indulgent either. Sure. I'm going to pick the parts that are salient. Um, I loved the way you wrote about your ex-wife, which was mm-hmm. like, look, you, you never slammed her. You never oh, – no. I'm no, She's you, a wonderful person. Right. I'm saying you, know? you, yeah. you never sort of like – you just said, look, my – I ended up sort of – my life has exploded. I'm, I'm lost, and I'm trying to grab onto this thing. And you, you also made a great creative choice of kind of starting us in motion. You know, yes. you're landing. You're yeah. That's in media. In media, in media race, race. you yeah. really feel that that's it is what it's that. supposed to be. I mean, I picked up that term when I was in college from this guy who was teaching a class on Dante. Where'd and you I, go to school? Oh man, I don't want to be that guy. But I went to Princeton, right? And I took a class only about the Divine Comedy. Okay. Did so, you take any classes with McPhee when you were there? Yes, I took the McPhee you did? class too. Yeah, man. Oh, I don't so want to lose like, the whole podcast. In a way, to no, that, no, but, but the, the book is largely. I mean, the fact that I even took this course of writing nonfiction in my life was because of John McPhee. But I took I took a course on Dante's Divine Comedy only about that work by a guy named Bob Hollander, um, and um, so the book begins with the quote from Dante's Divine Comedy: "Nel mezzo del cammino di nostra vita mi ritrovai per una selva oscura che la derita via era Wait, you didn't want to be the guy who said <laughs> you didn't want to be the guy who said Princeton, but you want to be the I've guy. Been, I've been you tra- want to be the guy who know, throws I, the Latin at I'm me. Trotting, it's not Latin. It's, it's Italian, like Florentine, old Italian. Florentine, old Italian. I'm trotting it out for a reason because I'm sure people will open the book and see there's a starts with a quote from Dante in Italian. They'll be like, "Fuck this guy." I understand that response. I mean, but the reason I did it was almost an inside joke because you can read the entirety of Dante's Divine Comedy as a metaphor for a midlife crisis. That's the truth. And Hollander taught it in, on many levels. It's, it's in fact partly a commentary on Florentine politics at the time. It's also about Dante's own midlife crisis um, and his falling in love with somebody else. There's all these other stories going on. It's not just going to heaven and hell um, and purgatory. So... Um, I thought it was kind of a wink about my own midlife crisis, which, you know, I seem to have self-medicated with tasting menus. No, I think that that <laughs> quote, I think it's good. That the quote in Italian, uh, that, that joke will be received by one quarter of 1% of the people who pick up the book. Yeah, but the people but, but who get it. those people who get it, <laughs> they they're yours it. for life, yeah, dude. I know. They're your like... fans for life. They're the ones yeah. showing up in the snow. Do you ever, you ever read Oster's Leviathan? Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, at the beginning of that book, it's a snowstorm, and there's a, a guy has a reading, yeah. and the only other person, so he's in this bar, and it's a snowstorm, so no one showed up at the reading, yeah. except one other dude, and then he finds out that other dude is the other guy reading. <laughs> there's two <laughs> authors. I've been there. Yeah, well, everyone's been there. But, oh, but oh, Also, Dante's Divine Comedy actually begins, what I re- what I just said in Italian means, essentially, I fa- in the middle of my life, I found myself in a dark forest, and I didn't know the way out. That's the beginning of the Divine Comedy. So 
Hungry begins on a beach where I don't know where I am. Sea turtles are clambering up. A guy's waving a flashlight in my face. It begins in that same place of like, I'm in midlife, I'm lost, it's a do- I'm in the darkness. And I thought, oh, it's inevitable. This is basically an echo of Dante, hopefully in an unpretentious way. And you know how a lot of books have an introduction? I fucking hate that. Just start the book. Yeah. Like, I want to see a movie, like, watch Pulp Fiction. It just starts. It has all these weird parts, but it just begins. And I I feel like I never want to write an introduction again. I want books just to begin like that, you know, like in a cinematic way. Because a lot of people, I will tell you, a lot of people told me, I was sort of resistant to this. I'm a little weary of Noma and all that. But as soon as I started reading it, I was sucked in. That's right. what you want in an episode of Billions or a book or whatever. You want to be sucked in. Yeah, bring us in. Bring us in and tell tell us your story. Uh, I like an introduction if it's written by someone who I really, really give a shit about to well, give yeah. context. But often an introduction, like one of my favorite books ever is, uh, though I haven't read it in a very long time, but Demian, you know, the Hess book. Oh, yeah. But I, I took me, I carried it for a year before I read it because the introduction oh. was so dense. Oh. And like the introduction See? just kept me out. By yeah, the, that's the first three lines of the introduction, I swear to you, a friend gave it to me. I carried it around for a year. And then finally I was like, well, don't, you don't have to, nobody's forcing you to read the introduction. Just start the book. Just do what and you And then want. I fucking dug it. And then I, I, I loved it though. I, you probably read it in the German. I didn't. I just had no, to read it in. No, I don't in, know any German. I just had to read it in, <laughs> in, in English. Um, so, yeah, so it was how like, did you take, yeah. God, no, you speak. No, I don't know what I'm saying. We're just talking. I like this. I didn't even have to wear headphones. This is great. Yeah, we're just talking. Um, well, part of what happened, you, you know the Bob Dylan documentary, Don't Look Back? I benefit. really, better than any other documentary. Me too. I know it the best of any documentary I've ever... That, that I've seen it more than any other documentary. I've thought about it for hundreds of hours. Wow. We're separated at birth. Yes. Okay, so like, yes. I've watched it probably 20 times. Yeah, I mean, I... Yeah. And I'm obsessed with Dylan. My twin babies were born on Dylan's birthday. One's named Wesley because of John Wesley Harding. Okay, like, I mean, like, you know, those are not busy being born or busy dying, etc. So, um... I've always wanted to do something similar to Don't Look Back. I always thought, like, what if you had access to Steve Jobs, access to David Bowie, access to Beyonce, somebody incredibly pivotal in the culture, uninhibited, unfiltered access. What if you had that? And as I got to know Rene Redzepi, I realized that it was sitting in my lap. It was like I knew this guy who was changing the conversation about food around the world and intensely charismatic and... um. He was basically letting me ride shotgun in his life, right? He, you know, he would start texting me, say, come to Sydney. Come to Merida. We're down in Merida for some research. I would go on Expedia or Kayak or whatever, get a cheap flight and just go. Um, squandering untold sums of money along the way. <laughs> before you had the yeah, before, before you had the deal for the book? Yeah. Like, once you had the deal for the book, you could expect Yeah, well, the, it, the right? first chunk of advance is long gone. That is the second chunk because I used it all on, on research. These research. Yeah. But like Australia, I didn't have a deal for the book yet then, nor did I have an assignment from the New York Times. I did write about the um, Noma Australia briefly for the New York Times because I was there and I thought I'll write a little piece. But um, I spent my own money. Lauren spent her own money. We the hotel, the flight, everything. By the that, time you were in Mexico, you were not at the Times anymore. The, the third section of the book, no. By you then, weren't at the Times anymore. That point, I Pete said, wrote about Tulum. I remember. Well, the, he didn't go. But the, he wrote about the question of the money of Tulum. Yeah, but he did a piece like why I'm not going to Nova yeah, Mexico. I remember that piece. But Pete did, and I argue all the time, and I, and that you know I was like, dude, come on. I mean, I eventually brought Pete to. Uh, 
Tonoma, you know, but but like you, I mean, you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned yeah. that in the book. <laughs> the book, the book is sort of bookended by these meals because the 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 last meal I had at Noma, that the new Noma was was with Pete Wells, who I sort of smuggled in, and um, the first meal I had at Noma, as you alluded to, is with this guy Grant Gold. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but he essentially slept through it. It was crazy. I can't. I was so angry reading it. I mean, I flew. I flew to Copenhagen just to go to Noma. I know. Like I literally for forty hours just to go to Noma. I yeah. mean, you got so me. So did rest. I. Yeah, that's yeah. why I went there. But but um, <laughs> this guy did too. He spent all the money. I said, "You have a table. You just all you gotta do is sit with me." And he didn't. Come. I literally went to. I mean, I so I, I can't. I can't fathom it. Here's the thing about Don't Look Back, though, and this the difference between this and and Don't Look Back. Is you got Renee when he was sick. You got Renee when he was con- uh, concerned. You got Renee when yeah. he kind re- of re-fortified himself. Yeah, you you right. got him late at night with his chefs. Yeah. You got him. But for me, the a miracle of one of the miracles of Don't Look Back is I think there's only one unvarnished Dylan moment in the whole thing. Oh. I think the only moment that Bob is not performing for yeah. us is the backstage moment when he's about to go on. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I think that he's aware, right? The trick of a documentary of reality television is that the subject stops being aware. Yeah. But when I watch Don't Look Back, I see Dylan creating, and tell me if I'm wrong, because it's interesting how we how we look at a subject and how we read it, and, and also journalistically, how you make these decisions about when somebody is putting something on and when they're real. So, uh, and I guess the other real Dylan moment, let's say the backstage moment when he's kind of talking to himself and he looks at the camera and talks, yeah, yeah. I think is real. Yeah. Um, because he's about to go do this thing in yeah. walk out there with just his acoustic guitar in front of all these people. And then um, I think the moment with Donovan is real because I think that Donovan got under his skin in yeah. a way that – Forced him to play that song and destroy Break Donovan, and he had to. Sort the, of... <laughs> the Donovan scene, it's to me one. I am so obsessed with that scene. Pete Wells and I have texted about that scene for years, like, because to me, it's like Mozart and Salieri and Amadeus, you know, like when when Dylan's like, oh, no, no, give me the guitar, let me play my song, and he does it's all, it's all, it's all right, all, huh? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's just like. And Donovan is just crushed there looking in the face of genius. Like he's, he's right. Dust. That's genius. Dust. And there's nothing like Donovan is Salieri because he's aware that there's a gulf between him and Bob. Unbridgeable but, gulf. But think about if you actually think about Dave and my work, you can think about the influence that scene has had on us. Like think well, about yeah. Bobby Axelrod or Matt walking in with the judges game. Like in That's round, like that scene is gigantic to Levine and me. It's yeah. something we've talked about for our whole career. Because of the what the, what Bob chooses to do in that yeah. moment, he could have done a lot of things. He decimates it, and he decides <laughs> to destroy because <laughs> it could be destroyed. You know? Yeah, because he because and don't look back. You know he's he's such a dick. I mean, that's one of the reasons I've drawn to the movie is like he's you know there's he's also so awful to the reporter from Time Magazine. What do you mean by folk music, man? Yeah, it's like, brilliant. You know, man. my son who's thirteen and he and maybe this is like common term and it's in songs and stuff i wouldn't know but he's he uses the term flexing on people it's a very common yeah, it's a okay, great yeah. term yeah but weird I feel, flex dude yeah, yeah yeah he's like you know dylan is flexing on donovan so hard there i love that he uses that expression <laughs> at 13 it's fucking awesome but but here you find renee unguard so I, for me bob and don't look back is is actually manufacturing the guarded persona he took through the yeah. next bunch of years. It's another. It's another uh, persona. It's that an he iteration yeah. that he's. You know. Yeah. Um, 
which I guess is the one that Blanchette played in the movie, right? But mm. that persona, I think. But oh, he, yeah. in that other movie, um, yeah, the I'm title not, of which I'm not I don't there, remember. I'm not yeah, here, right. Yeah. The Todd Haynes movie. That was awesome. That was a beautiful Todd film. Haynes, another fucking genius. Todd but Haynes is a that's genius. That's another genius. He right is there. so Total, great. Total, complete genius. As good as anybody at making a movie. <laughs> Ever, but um, oh, the gold mine, my god! I mean, that guy's just so good Sorry. at making movies. <laughs> uh, but, um, but here you have Renee, who could put on these kind of airs, who could perform. R- Renee and Ren- knows how to perform. Well, sure, you would watch his Instagram, which is the most compelling Instagram, and it's clear he understands the character of Renee Redzepi, the world's most interesting chef. But the version we get in your book is, and I'm I'm, I'm interested in. In your technique. Oh, um, yeah. If you can just talk a little bit about what you do to get somebody to allow their persona, whether it's conscious or not, or whether you choose to just arrive in a moment when they have to. But yeah. we do get a look at a genius, right? Renee's a genius. and I'm I agree. totally fascinated by genius yeah. my, my whole life. I yeah. write about genius all the time. Of course. That's like the subject that yeah. we, we write about genius a lot. But here we have a genius... At the moment of trying to reinvent, at the moment of questioning his own genius, at the moment yeah. of and and he's and unraveling, really. unraveling, and yeah. almost like a movie character where he's in the desert. He's lost movie character. I mean, you know, Jesus, but like at yeah. a moment where he's he's lost, and I mean that's what the desert thing is. It's Jesus. Yeah. It's not a mo- just a movie character. It starts <laughs> there, but um, at a, a, a moment where he's he's stripped open, right? And yeah. did you think part of that had to do with that you were? And, and and did you share with him the desperate emotional state straits you found yourself in? No, I didn't talk about myself that much. In terms of the technique, the technique is I'm ex- extremely boring and and just a fly on the wall and, and largely unnoticed. And I um I do something incredibly old fashioned. I write everything in a notepad. I don't use tapes and stuff. I don't have my phone out in his face the whole time. And as a result, I become very unobtrusive and somewhat invisible. And I largely, mostly we were in vans going through Mexico. Mostly I was just at the back of the van with June, who is the member of the team from Japan, a super sweet guy. And I would just listen to their conversations and write them down. And, you know, same as there's a dinner at Nectar in Merida where Renee basically has a breakdown. It's like, did we fuck up? Tell me, are we doing the wrong thing? You know, I was just sitting there eating dinner. And I was loving the food, basically, stuffing my face with all this delicious Mexican food. And he couldn't eat. Um... I think because I think it's, he was because he was having food poisoning. Or he was no, this was different. He was sick one with a mole trip to Oaxaca. When we went to Merida, he was losing his mind because and oh god, I hit the mic. How unprofessional is that? Um, he um, it's a podcast. He lost yeah. the funding. He lost a yeah. million dollars of funding from. I remember this. Um, a figure whom I don't mention, but it, it a prominent figure who, because of Trump's election and a lot of factors, essentially rescinded promised funding for Noma Mexico. The reason the cost of a meal at Noma Mexico was $600 was entirely due to that. It was originally supposed to be about $200 or 250 or something, still quite high, but reasonable. I mean, for for what it is. For what's, what's supposed to be for, for the care they put in and for the world's best restaurant, yeah, uh, I mean, supposedly. They, they, you know, by the way, all the money, I mean, Renee and Noma didn't make money from Noma Mexico. All the money went out to the Yucatan to purveyors and craftspeople and people working in the kitchen and everything. It, it was not a profit-making endeavor. It was meant to be this kind of art installation, experiment in risk and reinvention. Um, but the funding dropped out, and I, you know, this is that Tom Wolf gay to lease thing. I was hugely influenced by the new journalists, and a lot of it is just being there. You just hang around long enough, 
One day I woke up in my hotel. I went over to their inn, and they were desperate. They just all had the ashen faces. The entire Noma team looked like they'd, had, they'd been gutted. And they were talking to a, a, a branding agent from one of the big spirits firms who was who's really cool guy, almost like... I mean, you describe it great, man, in the <laughs> he book. He was like Coachella moment, cool guy, just... you know? And he, he was like... Um, he was so delicate in his pitch. He was like, look, man, we're not going to intrude on the whole Noma aesthetic. It's like, maybe you have a cocktail with some of our tequilas or, you know, maybe you... You put the brand name on the cup, and they would have paid for the whole they thing. Would have solved the financial problem entirely. And Renee flirted with it. He'd never taken on any sponsors at all. It runs. It's a the whole concept is anathema to, to what Noma's about, which is this kind of indie spirit. Um, you know, not to spoil anything, but as you see, he eventually decided not to do this, and it partly decided not to do this because we went out to the to Yaksuna, this Mayan village, and had cochinita pibil cooked in a hole in the ground, and it just dawned on him that was supposed to be the spirit of it. It's supposed to be a true love letter to the people of Mexico and their culture, and it was not supposed to be some corporate horseshit. And he he said, "Fuck it, we'll figure it out," and he took a lot of heat on Twitter and everything for the cost of it, you know. And as you said in the Times and stuff. Yeah, he well the Times did a piece and and then the inevitable, you know, Dwight Garner in the New York Times recently wrote in a book review that Twitter was where you go for your drive-by crucifixions. I was like, "Oh, yes. That's exactly it." I mean, it's painful, you know. So, um yeah, so I think that I spent enough time with him. You know, he. I got the book advance. So the last third of the book was subsidized by that book advance. And I could just grab a flight to Merida right. or to Norway to hang out with Roddy Sloan above the Arctic. Um, and I couldn't predict which play, which trips. Like, I couldn't actually hang out with Ray solidly for months. Because I have family and he has family. He doesn't want me around that long. Um so I'd sort of uh, cherry pick trips that sounded sounded interesting. Did you become friends by the end of it? I think we're friends. I think we're friendly. He's read it, you know. And and um, what was his reaction? Well, it's funny you say this. I was with I was at uh, Mama's Two Pizza Place up in the Upper West Side with my friend Omar Mamoon, who's a great guy, food writer in San Francisco. And we were eating pizza, and suddenly I got a text from Renee Redzepi. It said, "I've read the book," and I was like. Omar, I have to step outside for a second. <laughs> He's like, why? I was like, Renee has read Hungry. I'm, I don't know what he thinks. I care what he thinks, but I'm not supposed to care what he thinks. You know, I didn't write it for Renee's approval. I, I mean, he's not co-bylined on it. I have deep respect for him and for his family and for his enterprise. But, you know, I tried to make it an honest portrait. So I stepped outside and I was like, and, you know, what do you think? He's like, I cried. Oh, that's great. Yeah, he's like, I, I cried several times. I laughed. I I blushed because of the, some of the praise. Um, I I think it's just really honest, genuine portrait of where I was at this time. I mean, part of it is you can't re recreate these meals. You can't recreate these trips. It's not the same as music. Music, you can hear it. Film, you can see it. This is, is gone well, forever. Well, you talk about this too, the ineffable. Yeah, so that's my argument to Renee to do the book in part was like, you have to do something for posterity. You're going through this moment that will not be captured. Let's talk about Fiverr. Look, it is hard finding freelance talent for your business or project. Finding the right freelancer can be time-consuming, frustrating, and expensive. 
you never know where do you go to find the right talent? How much will it cost? How do you know once you've put all that work in, they're going to be able to deliver? But thanks to Fiverr, finding the right freelancer doesn't have to be a struggle. Look, here's the thing. Fiverr's Marketplace connects businesses with freelancers who offer hundreds of digital services, including graphic design, copywriting, web programming, film editing, more. You can search by the service you're looking for, by when you need it delivered, by the price. You can look at reviews, see who did well, see who didn't do as well, see who works in a style that you like, which is always really important. And look, there are no surprises here. You'll know exactly what you're paying for up front. You don't have to negotiate because the deal will have been set at the beginning. Take five and check out Fiverr.com, F-I-V-E-R-R.com. You'll receive 10% off your first order by using my code MOMENT. It's so easy. Don't waste any more time and get the service you deserve by going to F-I-V-E-R-R.com, code MOMENT. Again, that's Fiverr.com, code MOMENT. Well, this moment thing obviously is something that's taken up a lot of my thought and time, but you know, that's why I call the podcast The Moment. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the reason I call the podcast The Moment was I'm, I'm fascinated by these moments where yes. everything's in the balance. But you were juggling a few moments, right? And, and you were juggling, and I want to, knowing, or I wonder if you knew you'd found the great story of your life up to this point to tell. But you were also juggling that your family was blowing apart. You were trying to yeah. keep your relationship with your first kids. You were yeah. falling in love with somebody else. Yeah. And at Via Carota, right down the street here is where, where our first date was. Where I'm going for lunch today. Yeah, you know, and, where today. We, and where we got engaged. Too. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So you're juggling all these different, all these different things that really mattered to you. And I'm wondering. Yeah. You know the 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 call to do an artistic endeavor. People are always talking about how hard how hard it is with it, life stuff. You know, and I often think, as we started by talking about, so much of that is is the fear of not being able to do the thing you really want to do as yeah, well as you want to do right. it. But how difficult, Jeff, was it? Because I feel the, so much emotion in the book. And by the way, you mm. wrote it with a lot of restraint, so it's not like you're asking for our sympathy at all in the book. You're yeah. merely telling us what you were going through in a, a way that makes us care. But when you knew you had to leave your kids, you had to, you know, tell the woman you were falling in love with, and sometimes she went with you and sometimes she did. Mm-hmm. How did you balance? How did you think about all that stuff? Because it, it does feel like there's this sense of you falling overboard and just trying to grab onto something oh, so that yeah. you didn't sink. And, yeah, and that's true. how did you parse all that for yourself? How did you think about all that for yourself? Well, in terms of putting it in the book, I originally wanted to keep that to a minimum, and I didn't want it to be too memoiry. And look, I'm an old wasp; like, we're supposed to be sort of restrained about, like, you know, revealing emotions and stuff. But after a while, I realized there had to be first-person passages because the Grant Gold scene at the, my first meal at Noma is not funny if I'm not there getting anxious about his lack of punctuality. So I started including myself in early drafts more and more. Simply to, uh, so as a rhetorical device, simply just like if I'm not present, it, it's it's too convoluted or too awkward. And then I started realizing that there was this a built-in contrast between Renee's gospel of constantly moving forward, constantly just he never looks back. Like don't look back is could be his mantra as well. He just moves forward, and all I was doing 
was looking back. I was just gnawing on the past all the time. I was gnawing on this guilt, regret, sadness. I would just walk back and forth. I live up in Westchester County, and there's this aqueduct trail near where I live. And I got to the point where I could tell you every log, every pebble, every, like, you know, cluster of clump of dirt. I would just walk this path for, like, hours and hours every day thinking about how I messed up my marriage, basically. Just gnawing on it. And um, that stuckness represented such a stark contrast to Renee's philosophy. And so I think in part the intoxication of getting to know Renee was he was like an antidote to this. Well, he yes. was like, no, just let it go. Move forward. Go, go, go. But I wonder like, if that's part of what made you leave over and over again because you knew it was some kind of salvation for you. Because yeah. I would think if I were in that situation, it would be hard. I, would do, I mean, obviously, I've left a lot to have to do what I had to do. But I do think part of it had to do with what it must have made you feel. And I wonder if then when you came back in with your kids and if it gave you somehow stuff to work with when you were talking yeah, to them that's and true. dealing yeah. with them. If that was, if you were, you know, if you were getting something from it in a way. I think I was getting insights into, I think in, in some ways I'm just a kind of classic ex escapist and um, always saying yes to adventures. If you were to say to me like, I don't know, I'm thinking of going through Sicily for a week, I'd probably just right. say yes and like <laughs> figure out the the particulars and all the logistics later. I mean, I, like this morning, you know, I got up at five thirty. I have to make lunches, school lunches for my two older kids, make their breakfast, make bottles for the babies, make get the coffee for me and Lauren, drive my older kids to school. My first wife is actually in Portugal all week with celebrating a major birthday. So it's all you. Her. Yeah, so the whole week, it's, all four kids are with me. And it, it, it's just chaos, you know. It's it's, it's absolutely chaos. And then my daughter's like, you know, I have a, a choral concert tomorrow. My son's like, I have a track meet. And I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> no. You know, like, she's taking the SATs on Saturday. It's just nuts. So, you know, and, and I, I do my best to be present. And I, I think I, you know, I think I'm a good dad. But, man, if somebody, I just was invited to Singapore. From, and I was like, eh. Just my, I asked Lauren. She's like, just say yes. You know you can't resist this. And like it becomes a kind of. I don't really do drugs or anything. I've never had that issue. It, to me, the drug is the adrenaline rush of landing in a completely new place. So I've never been to Singapore. So the idea of like getting off that plane and being in Singapore is so exciting to me. It's exciting no matter where I am, whatever country. I just become trembling with excitement about it. Like, Has that always been the case, Jeff? Yes. It's been my whole life. Like, I, 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 I self-medicate through these trips, I think. And so it's made me a good journalist because I say yes to a lot of things. It's a way in which I'm so <laughs> limited. I'm so really? uh, jealous of people for whom... Like, the Copenhagen trip was one of the best 40 hours of my life. I went with my son. It was yeah. my present to him for graduating from yeah, college so and, nice. like, all that stuff. But generally... I'm a little in that. It's the one of the only ways in which I'm provincial and parochial. I like oh. America. I actually, what? I really don't like America, like a lot of what America yeah. has become. Um, but I like America. I love, and I, um, I like Europe too. But I haven't, and I really want to go to Tokyo. Like I've never been to Tokyo. Yeah, you never met someone who likes Japanese food more than I do, yeah, and Japanese right. culture. Yeah. But I, the the thought of the twenty hours in the plane. Yeah. And the tiredness. Yeah. Like what I would – that it would take me a week to feel ready to see it's Tokyo. awful. Yeah, it's destabilizing. I can't 
there's something about that and it's a real limiting factor for me because I could do these things, but I can't, it doesn't ultimately pulling the trigger on that. I would rather pull the trigger on a slow trip to Hawaii where I stop in California and go to Hawaii, sit by the beach. And it's, um, and I feel like I've missed, so I read, I read about these places, which is the gift of what people like you do, which is I can read about these things. Like I was invited to Mexico to, to go to, Tulum to Renee's restaurant. A friend of mine went and he was like, I could get you to come. Oh, yeah. And I just didn't fucking do it. And oh. I regret it so much, you know, that I didn't. It's do the meal it. of the decade. But this has always <laughs> been the thing that, I, yeah, I also didn't go see Zeppelin when they. Oh, my God. And I had lunch with their managers last week and they were like, you know, we did invite you to the show. But at the time, I didn't have the money. I mean, at year? the time, you know, no, like when they played uh, together oh, yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. At the time, wherever my career was, I actually wasn't going to spend the money to go to England. And the whole thing just seemed the opposite to what I was trying to do, which was write well. Like, I couldn't quite take the time and come back and do my work. Yeah. But I regret it now. I'm dumb. So dumb. Yeah, I mean... You got to go. If someone's playing once in 30 years, you have to go. Yeah, I mean, it's... I, I should focus only on my writing and my family and my health routine and all that, but I don't. I say yes. And by the way, it could be Memphis. Even on brushing your hair. Maybe. No, I know. I mean, I'm that's... sorry. I didn't even. But I, 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 I uh, like recently I was in Seattle. I was in New Orleans. I'm going to Chicago next week and then Detroit. I was, um, oh, Lauren and I put the babies and my 13-year-old in a car and we just, Drove to Washington D.C. Well, that's ate awesome. At, ate at Kithinkin, stayed at the line. Then we drove to Richmond, where my brother lives, and we, you know, like oh yeah, I, I went to D.C. last week, a week before last, oh, yeah. and just went down there with my, and like did a, went to the Supreme Court and had an amazing oh, time. Nice. Oh yeah, I don't think I, I just ate in a decent Italian restaurant. Nothing special. Nothing. I should have asked you. Always ask. I want you to. Have, I want you to have. It has to be a reflex. Experience. A reflex action to. I think. Ask. I, I think I'm a little addicted to, the. Um, the electrifying quality of the moment. Me too. I mean, you know, like like when I was 14 years old, I saw The Clash at the Hollywood Palladium. I grew up in Los Angeles, Pasadena, really. And, um, you know, I had some older friends who turned me on to punk rock and Bowie and all sorts of stuff. And they drove me to the – I was 14, and they drove me to the Palladium. The English Beat opened. <laughs> Which is incredible, and then and and I mean I was already covered in sweat just from dancing to them, and then the Clash came out, the Union Jack rolled down. They played like Takata and Fugue by Bach, which Box, like yeah, the, Takata and Fugue and D minor. It's Takata music. and Fugue and D minor is yeah. like the thing. Yeah, the haunted house music, and then they yeah. cracked into London Calling. And um, I grew up very conservative. I grew up in a very Republican, evangelical Christian community, and um, seeing the Clash, it was like it transformed me. And I, I mean, whatever politics the clash were expressing, I don't even know. Is very vague. But I, I and, and like I don't know quite. I didn't even know quite what they were saying. I just knew that it seemed to represent the truth, and it seemed to re- represent some beacon of a different way to live. Right. So like punk rock, poetry, film, and food in Los Angeles, all kind of changed my consciousness as a teenager. Because when I was Still in high school was when Jonathan Gold and Ruth Reichel started writing for the LA Times and 
basically pre-internet introducing all the neighborhoods to each other you know saying did you i mean when i lived where i lived in pasadena sorry for this tangent but like i love this tangent. i was i lived in a little town called did, san marino did you get to see van halen in like 78 when, you were, halen, when you were 12 van halen are my hometown band. right that's why I'm, that's the yeah. reason i'm asking yeah, the question I'm glad you know like that. they played at the pasadena civic center like in 76 and you would have been 10 or 9 yeah, <laughs> but but did you go like in 78 or have you read van halen rising which is no all about them only in pasadena Oh, how oh did I dude, it's great. I, 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 uh, I have to read that. I might have a copy of it here because I blurbed it because the guy knew that I was an old Van Halen expert oh. from the, that time. They're the only metal, them and Metallica are the only metal type well, bands. Well, those are I my, like, I mean, those yeah. are the two metal bands that I know the best, you know. But they, I, well, So David Lee Roth, um, unless I'm misremembering it, but this was the folklore when I was growing up. His dad, Dr. Roth, Dr. Roth yeah. was a dentist in San Marino and was the dentist to guys in my garage band. So, like, they, they were super local dudes, right? And David Lee Roth actually had, later on after he made a lot of money, this mansion. Yeah, that Lisa, his sister, would live in with him. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was near, is you know, it was a pretty wealthy area I grew up in, let's just be blunt. And it, and, and it was near the, where I lived, where my parents lived. And, and I, the way I remember, I mean, again, this is folklore. It could be, like, misremembered but i remember that my friend rich and i went up to his mansion to check it out you know <laughs> and he had a sign that said something like don't even think about it dude i love it <laughs> i love it but that may be just folklore but um yeah so um how did so we you get saying, on that sorry you were saying ruth reichel and <laughs> oh, jonathan yeah. gold started writing about oh, the, the yeah. different neighborhoods and connecting Hey, this food here, Korea town has this kind of food. Yeah, and and you start reading that stuff. Well, the thing is that if you, you know, this is pre Google, it's pre Eater. There were there weren't food blogs. There was nothing, you know. So the only way you'd find out about a new restaurant, was largely or just a really cool, interesting restaurant, uh, was word of mouth. And then suddenly, yeah. Jonathan Gold and Ruth came to you know started making their imprint on the city and where I lived. San Marino, right on the border of Pasadena. It turned out that right up the hill was this incredible Armenian food. Like, I, we, I was like 16 years old. I didn't know that. Right over here in Monterey Park was this incredible Chinese food, some of the best Chinese food, Taiwanese food, Hong Kong stuff in, in, in the country. What, what, were you, what was a typical dinner at your house at that time? Um, my mom's a great cook, but she largely makes sort of like French, like California, like sort so of like, like what a, would be like uh, a typical Wednesday, like a school night dinner. What would a school night dinner have been? Um, we always had artichokes. Like my wife is from the west side of LA, and she grew up like we we do artichokes all the time. Like artichokes, a kind of salad that usually had citrus in it, like orange slices or something. We would often have like a flank steak, teriyaki flank steak in the backyard, or a fish, or she would do. In the colder months, uh, like a Provencal-style roast lamb, like studded with rosemary and garlic. So it was real food, actually. You were eating. Yeah. You were eating a tradition, like um, from a certain kind of tradition. But yeah, you were eating. You were aware of the way someone would compose a dinner. In oh yeah, some way it wasn't like in my my mom. She passed ten years ago. She was a great mother, and and. A real enthusiast about stuff, but but essentially it was breaded chicken. Like that's oh, what really? we had, you know, Amazing. pretty much breaded chicken. If we would go out to dinner, even though, um, like you, I was raised with privilege, but my dad was first generation money. When he grew yeah. up, he never went to eat out. My dad never ate out till he was like seventeen, never really? once. 
So we, they had very simple sort of, um, my dad liked Southern Italian food and sort of like neighborhood Chinese. So we would once in a while go out to something like that, but we really didn't mm. have an adventurous thing. So when mm. my father would meet somebody in his business, because he was in music, who had exotic taste, or and they would take us on some trip, my kinship with them would be immediate. And I was, yeah. it just blew my mind. Yeah. And I, that's what started my incredible love and fascination for new and different flavors and yeah. the way a culture's thought about food. Exactly. Because that's the thing. As much as I don't like traveling, I'm, I love the, I love the result of it. I love learning about the way cultures think about food and and all of that stuff: art, food, music, all that stuff coming together. So you start branching out and going, yeah. and you you guys could drive at a young age. There. Yeah. Yeah, my, yeah, Rich, my friend Rich, who later became a chef for a while in Paris and London, and then he then he wound up going to Berkeley for a business degree and went and worked at Williams Sonoma. But he was he was like almost the er, the original foodie. Let me tell you, Rich Seifert, look it up. He and so we, Chef Gordon. Probably I mean, we out would do there. things like okay, we got we got forty five minutes for lunch from school. Jay Gold wrote about this fucking burrito shop that's. Just far enough away that we may not be back in time, but let's do it. So we would like race up this way and get this burrito and then eat it in the, like in the car coming back. Like we became completely obsessed. I mean, I will say also my dad, my dad is, you know, he was the first generation breakthrough in terms of the corporate world. It was sort of that Mad Men era. And I think it was an emblem of prestige uh, for him to go to a restaurant like the Mandarin in San Francisco or Citrus in Los Angeles or La Grande here in New York, and say, "I got an amazing table." When like I, it, he liked to, it was like a when, show off. Yeah, man. When I got older, and my dad was in L.A. more, I mean, I would go out there with him a lot, and we would go to the Ivy. Oh yeah, and that salad, like having yeah. that salad for the first time yeah. for a New York kid, with this incredible amount of fresh vegetables and that citrusy dressing. Yeah, I remember that was like the that's one of like the first good restaurants where I was like, "Oh, this is good." Like this is yeah, different. That's right. This that's is right. changes your consciousness. Well, you're because suddenly this food is so alive, yeah. right? You suddenly it's just it's just different in some way. Yeah. But you just made me flash, and this is your gift of talking about this stuff, dude. It inspires. <laughs> just rambling. Well, no, and when you write about this stuff too, Jeff, this is what's so fun. When you were just talking about your high school thing, I was just flashing on the first time I ever had. Uh, there was this takeout greasy Chinese place somewhere near our school, and my friend. We called him Schlub. David Shulman and I would sometimes like light out from school to go bowling. We would like cut school to go bowling sometimes. There was this bowling alley and nice. kind of near school and we would just uh-huh. go bowl because we thought it was funny. <laughs> but there was this like little Chinese place and they had butterfly shrimp with bacon on it. And oh, I remember yeah. it was like I'd never had that before like because I was just going to egg for young joints yeah. and my dad would order the most simple oh, yeah. stuff. And I remember the first time eating it going like, Holy fuck! This is just this combination of stuff, and it really was like I, I want this every day. Like I got to yeah. eat this constantly yeah. now. Yeah. Um, did you get to know Jonathan Gold? No, that's a funny question because, because I, you I, were both. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, the... I, I, I've only, I only talked to him twice. What'd you say? What happened? Well, one time I was at um, the Mad Symposium, Renee Redzepi's symposium in uh, con- convocation of food media people and chefs and stuff in Copenhagen, and Jay Gold was walking by and my wife was like you gotta say hi to him and i was like i can't do it you don't understand this is like it'd be like coming up to i don't know bruce springsteen or i i I don't know coming up to 
Patty Smith, like Joe I, Strummer. I, uh, Patty Smith's a good example because she had a, her music had a huge impact on my life, and I I feel intimidated. I read Just Kids. I think it's a masterpiece. I don't know how to start a conversation with Patty Smith. Like just I I. I, I love her you know i was cranking gloria last night so it was similar i i can't i can't bother the man i don't know what to say and she she kind of tugged me over lauren did and she said you're gonna meet him and i and i you know i talked to him for a while and he was so nice he was a real sweet guy um and you identified the, yourself as the fr- i mean he must have known your stuff a little i guess bit. he did yeah i said look I, you know i just want you to know that essentially your writing is why i do this you know and uh he was very kind and but he was he was very inward and kind of geeky you know he was he was geeking out on various things he wanted to talk about the details of things just like renee he didn't he wasn't like hungry for praise or something so and then the the day noma ended the original noma he was actually there um at that point i knew i was probably going to do a book on this and i i will be honest with you brian was terrified because i thought if fucking Jago writes a book about Noma, I'm doomed. I'm dead. It yeah. will be so much better than mine. Like, so, uh, like, I hope he's not doing that. So I was sort of like, hey, Jonathan, good to see you again. What are you doing here, you know? And then he but, told you he didn't say he was no, writing No, he just, about. I think he was writing a piece. And um, <clears throat> when Noma ended, they had a party the next day at the new location. So they had this kind of, this is not even in the book because it was kind of boring to describe. But they... I described they took down the sign at the original Noma. That's in there. and But then there was this kind of march to the new location with all these famous chefs. Hest, um, not Heston Blumenthal. Who's the guy from... Uh, Magnus? No, the British guy. Uh, uh, anyway. Fergus? Fergus. Thank you. Fergus Henderson. Like, all these guys like that. Um, and Jago was in that group. And so we marched to the new location and had this kind of throwdown uh, under tents and stuff. Um, but... I mean, actually, I'm teaching a course in food writing out at Drexel, and we talked yesterday about, um, I signed a whole bunch of pieces, and a lot of the students brought up Jonathan Gold's piece about eating a raw live shrimp at a Korean restaurant in L.A., and we read it out loud together. We read out loud almost the entire piece, and, you know, there's something so powerful. John McPhee taught me this. He would force us to read our pieces out loud. To hear the music of a piece when you read it out loud, it, it tells you everything. It tells you whether it works or not, kind of. Like, I was really going for that in my book. I, and, and reading, I've always thought Jago was the, the, the supremo, really the greatest the, food The one that got time. me, I realized that, ah, this, I'm telling you, I love hearing these conversations with you because, uh, so for me, it was reading Jim Harrison's column. Yeah, but the, he is really uh, uh, a psychedelic writer. I mean, you know, his, his Esquire column was so, I, so I, weird. His Esquire column was my the reason I bought that magazine when I was in high school, right? I wasn't dressing. <laughs> yeah. Like, I wasn't wearing those. I wasn't dressing out of Esquire. I yeah. wasn't. Nor was I. You know, so. Um, I mean, But I th- that column, yeah. which I think lasted for a number of years, yeah. I never missed it. And it was yeah. like a, a, a world I, I could only access through, through words. And he would conjure. You know, I think it's such a hard thing to write about food well. Yeah, um, it is. A lot of people aren't good at it. Um, yeah, that's something Pete and I talk about a lot, because and, and other food writers we talk about. Because I think the secret of writing about food is there's there's so many pitfalls and potholes. You can go down the delicious rabbit hole, delicious yum yum. It was so spectacular. Is a chicken to die for? No. Or you can like try to describe a plum, or like you know, a, a, the best way to describe a plum is that it's a plum. You know, like the William Carlos Williams 
poem is probably the best way to describe a poem. Like sometimes the thing itself is the best route or a really abstract detour. Like when, when, I, when I described my first meal at Noma, I realized I couldn't, Brian. I was like, I, I, I'm just going to end up saying delicious 14 times. Or And so I actually went in this weird tangent about Glenn Gould taking apart the Goldberg variation, taking apart Bach and, and then the um, Bulgarian women's choir and the sort of microtones. Which I'll be honest, my wife was like, "What the hell are you writing?" About I just here? told Anthony Mangieri <laughs> that he's the Glenn Gould of pizza, and I really oh, think nice. he is yeah. actually. Yeah. And I was like, "You gotta, you gotta go watch That's that good. movie." Yeah. Oh yeah, it's from the documentary. I love documentaries. Like the documentary. But even about thirty-two Glenn short Gould. films is what I love, yeah, which exactly. is a narrative yeah, film, right. not a documentary. Yeah, you're right. But the way he slows down, speeds up, kind of um, turns, he kind of de-atomizes. Uh, Bach and, and like then sees how he can reconfigure it. I feel like that's what Rene was doing. And I feel that's what a lot of the great chefs are doing, like Ignacio Matos too, in a way. I feel like Anthony, the thing about Anthony that I, I, I is like the same way Glenn Gould would try a year out to make sure the piano was going to be tuned in mm-hmm. time. Like that's Anthony with an oven. That's Anthony with yeah. the dough. Oh, it's wow. like the that's way good. that he thinks about doing this, the way it matters to him different than it matters to anybody else yeah. that's why for me he's like my current and has been for, he's for the last 15 years has been like my hero in the world of food yeah um he's from where my dad grew up point pleasant beach that's where my dad grew up in near asbury park yeah oh you yeah. want to hear a funny story like one time my um when the babies were new wesley and jasper for some because we're we're because we're insane and this will tell you like that i married the right woman Lauren and I were talking about the shrimp box in, in Point Pleasant Beach, New Jersey, which is the restaurant my grandma would take us to all the time when I was a kid. It was probably the first restaurant that had an impact on me. And there's a, there's a fish market right near it called Spike's. Spike was like, I think he's a Gordonier too. There's a lot of Gordoniers in the Jersey Shore. Being idiots, we put the twins in the car. Dude, seriously, at that moment, and drove I love it. to Point Pleasant Beach three hours in, in Jersey traffic on a Friday night. Okay, we're nuts. And, the, and the, they, they slept, fortunately. Then we get to the restaurant, and it's a two-hour wait at the shrimp box. We're like, oh, my God, what have we done? You know, this is insane. Now we're in South Jersey. Like, <laughs> so I, I kind of like, you know, we're holding these babies. And I, I started talking to one of the people working there. And I was like, you know, I'm here. I'm from Esquire. And they don't care. I mean, I'm not going to try and, you know, right. use it. But when I mentioned offhand that I was Thelma Gordonier's grandson, a table opened up. Amazing. She was the queen of the shrimp box. So they remembered, they were like, oh, you're related to Thelma? I was like, yeah, here's my idea. She's my grandma. I mean, she's long gone, sadly. But, and, whoo, we got a table in like 10 minutes. You really <laughs> should make, power. you should make, you should make t-shirts with a picture of your grandmother and queen of the shrimp box yeah. on them. And that'd I think be all, awesome. I think all I ever wanted to be was my grandma and have that kind of, like, presence in a restaurant Where, like she did at the well, You and I box. are like brothers in a, from another, because, uh, when my son was very young, I decided that, and my my Amy, my wife, has the same the spirit. Uh, I decided that he had to see. We all had to see Reggie Jackson's oh. bust at the Cooperstown. Oh, maybe wow. Sam was two or three, and uh, I was like, I had never been to Cooperstown, and I felt like it was something Americans had to do. So we get in the car Ooh. and we just we just drive to Cooperstown, and we get there. And it turns out 
that Reggie wasn't getting enshrined until the next year. <laughs> there was no... There was no bust of Reggie. I mean, oh. yeah, there were bats of Reggie. There were things of Reggie's accomplishments, yeah. but Reggie no. Had touched Reggie things. had been only retired for whatever it was. His <laughs> oh The next year was when Reggie was going in. Yeah, you might have researched that. I could have checked ahead of time, <laughs> but uh, instead we just like barreled, because we love road... I would say that's the other thing. Yeah. I, we love road trips here. Amy and I love to take five hours with anywhere, oh, any yeah. destination. That for me, it's just the 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 flying far away. I haven't asked you any questions I planned oh, to ask you. Oh, but I'm sorry. No, it's been great. Better. I do want to get to just a couple things. Okay. Okay. Oftentimes, artists who are listening to this, one of the things they're frightened about is, well, what happens if I write about myself mm. and the people I love read that? What happens if I write about the people I care about and mm. they read it? Yeah. What kind of price am I going to have to pay? So. You know, your older kids are going to read your book. Yeah. Whether maybe they have already. No, I don't th- they haven't yet. But they will. Have, how does that. Yeah. How well, do you I, think oh. about. How do you think about all that stuff? Wow, that's a really good question. Okay. I thought about that a great deal. And it was a part of why I sank into a pretty deep depression while writing the book. Because I knew I had to write about going through a divorce. But I, I didn't want to indulge the readers by layering in every gory detail i also don't i just think i like short books this is short you can read it in a day i i didn't want it to be boring i didn't want it to be uh indulgent and like like oh wow i pick i'm reading 15 pages about jeff and his divorce i want to read about renee so i decided to make the the elements uh about my passage through this painful time quite um minimalist and um more evocative than indulgent, I would hope, you know. Um, but there are a couple lines that even, for me, are painful to read, you know. And, and the fact that it's compressed down to these min- minimalist passages, like there's a passage where I talk about that moment when you, you know, tell your wife that you're not going to sleep in that bed anymore and you tell the children, you're not, daddy's not going to live there anymore. And I mean... I flirted with taking that out, but there has to be some powerful truth about what I went through. And, and I mean, the, the, the moment of telling Margot and Toby was something I will never forget. And it was, the, it was the, the worst day of my life. You know, their tears actually saturated my jeans. Like, I'm getting choked up thinking about it. I lived around the corner. Um, I was not far away. And I was involved in their day, day-to-day life. But, you know, just the, the expression of that, this change is happening was agonizing. I didn't want to be one. You know, I've talked to some memoirists who are like, no, you put it all in there. You, you just, you know, no holds barred. I'm not that person. I, I'm just not yeah, that person. Yeah, you put and, it in. And I put in what I Did felt. you warn them? Did you talk to them about it after, no, afterwards? I, Have no. you still? Do they know? Oh, yeah, I've talked to them a little bit now, but I just put in what I felt was necessary for the story. And also, I didn't feel like it was my right to tell my ex-wife's story, by the way. I mean, if she ever wants to tell her story, that's her right. It's not my place to impinge on that, if that makes sense. It, um, and also, well, what I'm asking about is her. how you, what I'm asking about is when you're somebody who is aware, who is aware of the potential consequences of the work, how do you press on and do it anyway? Right? Because a lot mm. of people are, the pain I think a lot of people are in is they want to express themselves and they put up these blocks to express themselves. Yeah. How did you break through and, get to where you were able to 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 tell it was it just oh. the pain of not doing it was too great like yeah. oh, how did wow. you decide okay. i'm yeah. gonna do it despite the fact that i'm gonna reveal stuff about my yeah. kids and 
the, the stuff that I was most scared about is what everyone seems to like the most. Yes. I don't understand that. That's Emerson, that. by the way, right? That's Ralph it, Emerson. It's so weird. It's like, I thought, why am I including myself? This is going to make me so vulnerable and, and all the food writers on Twitter are going to make fun of me and Jeff's midlife crisis. Guess what? It's actually the part that everyone seems to, to love. And they, 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 it seems to, to soften it as some heroic chef, chef portrait and make it a very different story. I, I'll tell you, a lot of it had to do with friends. Um, my friend Jason, my friend Ian, my friend Rosie, just friends who were supportive and said, just keep pushing. Because I got very depressed. At one point, I was completely frozen, and I... You couldn't write. No, I couldn't write. And I, I, I mean, I, I get real dark. I mean, I get really, really in a dark place. I couldn't bang out this stuff. And then I... There's a quote in here from a song by a band called Phosphorescent. And they're, yes. Great okay, band. yeah. So, Say La Vie, uh, one of the more recent songs. I start. I, I heard it in the car, and it was exactly how I'd felt. Like that sense of numbness post-love. Without going into all the details, I wept in the car. And that song, I mean, I'm going to send a thank you note to Matthew from Phosphorescent because that song made me write the book. And I thought, I have to tell this is exactly where I was. That's why I quote from the And you were song. able to break through. That's how you were able to break through. Yeah. And so people might say, that's weird. Why do you quote from that random song? It's, it's kind of as a gift to Phosphorescent to thank them because... Um, I relate so to this so I went, hard. I went home and wrote about 20 pages that night. And I'll, I'll actually, I'll be honest, there was also a, a friend. It's weird. This, this old friend, Steve Diamond, okay? Great, close friend in college. He eventually moved to Singapore and started a hedge fund or something. And the nature of his work, very billions, like the nature of his work was so secretive that we completely lost touch for 15 years we didn't wow. email we didn't text like i did not know what steve was doing he raised a family and he eventually closed down the hedge fund moved back to dc and is doing an entrepreneurial project i was doing research for esquire on best new restaurants i was in dc i didn't know who to ask so i reached out to steve we hadn't seen each other in you know 17 years maybe instantly our friendship was back i loved the guy loved seeing him we had we ended up doing like three meals and along the way this hope this is more than your listeners want. But along the way, this he, is was, what they want. he was like, Jeff, can I be honest with you? And I was like, well, I'm you know, a friend, so I'm afraid about what's to come. But what? And he said, I really expected more of you. I expect. I mean, you've done some cool articles and stuff, but I thought at this point you would have written a novel. You were one of the great writers in our class in college. And, you have, you, you know, you did that stupid generational book. And beyond that, you know, what, what the fuck? And I was like, Ouch. That kind of hurts, man. Like, I, I, I've read some hell of great articles. John Kwan, my piece about her. Yeah, they're articles, man. Are you going to leave anything? I was like, he'd made a sizable amount of money, okay? And he said to me, I'm going to give you something. I got a house out in the Hamptons. You are going to go to it, and you're going to finish this Rene Redzepi book. I don't even know who the hell he is. He didn't know anything about Noma. But you're going to finish this book and make it good. I'll give you a week. You have to get it done. Talk to your wife. We'll make arrangements so that everyone is taken care of. But I'm give. I love you and want you to do this. And I was like, okay, I just might. And so I went out to the Hamptons. That's awesome. I know that sounds very privileged. No, it's but fucking it's yes, not it's my house. But it's, it's not awesome. my house. It was like you know, and and I don't know why I had to go there. I could have gone to my friend Ian's house up in the Catskills. It's just ramshackle place. He had offered, but somehow the directness of Steve Diamond's line to me made so much sense. So I told Lauren. 
this book is never going to get finished. I need to do this. So I went out and uh, woke up. It was off season. It was fall. So I woke up five, six every morning and just powered, chugged cold brew like nothing. Just had cold brew all day and wrote from six to seven at night. Wow. All day. Just coffee. Just from your Maybe notes. Maybe a banana. You just did it from your just, notes. Just, well, actually making the connections because there's yeah. scenes in Norway, scenes in the Bronx. I was like, how do they all connect? How does that connect to Merida? And um, then at night, I'd go get a lobster roll and a martini. The best foods of all time. The best things in the world, you know? Maybe some oysters. Oysters, lobster roll, and martini is... That's happiness to me. Then I just stop at one martini, go back, sleep, wake up, do it again. By Thursday, I was like, oh. I got some here. I got some. This wow. is good now. It wasn't good before that. It was kind of fractal. It was kind of a bunch of jumbled scenes like, oh, here's Malcolm in the Bronx, and here's the scene with the branding. Malcolm was John Gray's partner in Ghetto Gastro. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, I don't know what it and, and it started coming together. And by Saturday, I was sent Stephen Oda. I was like, you saved my life, man. Oh, it's the like best. Like this, you really did. Thank you. This is a good book now. And I sent it to Tim. D- I mean, I know this because I've written a bad book. Like, <laughs> I'm being honest. I was like, this is actually decent. I sent it to Tim Dugan. And he's like, I don't know what you did, but this is one for the ages now. And I was like, huh. So um, Is that your editor? Yeah, Tim Dugan books. Is- so I, I um, And obviously there were a lot of revisions after that and fine-tuning it and fine-tuning it. I was very influenced in the final phases by a Jane Hirschfield poem. So a huge part of my life is poetry. In my bag, back in your office, I have four books of poetry. I carry them around all the time. I buy two or three books of poetry a week. Oh, I need a list of recs. I'm, when we're done, I need a list to, of recs. I, I write about it on I like the James Galvin a yeah, lot. Good. I, I got, like I'll, James I'll Galvin. Um, I like um, Marie Howe. Oh, she's great. I wrote uh, about Marie at the Times. I interviewed her near here. She's Her... Um, Poem, What the Living Do, it's, it's the is best. one of the greatest. My wife quotes books. that at the beginning of one of her yeah. novels. It's an incredible, oh, wow. yeah. now, and I'm at the end of my childbearing years. I mean, it's just an yeah. incredible poem. She's, 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 uh. She taught me at college, and, uh, I got to spend a good amount of time with Marie, and, and oh, wow. she's brilliant. And I love Mary Carr's poems, too. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll say, we'll say, but some, I, I need your, well, I need, I need, I need your, I love James Galvin because it's an American West that I'll never know. So that's what I yeah. I no, like. He's great. And you mentioned William Carlos Williams before. I wanted to say, but you were running. You were on a good run. Oh. I wanted to tell listeners, it's funny. Poetry is so daunting. And like I bet very small percentage of us read poems. There I could go weeks without reading poems, months. Um but Williams Carlos Williams Patterson, which is a prose mm-hmm. poem, yeah. is really, really worth reading. It's one of the great American works and yeah. like you should just know it. It's kind of a thing you should know. Yeah. Not so you can talk about it with people. It just gets inside you, and it's worth knowing, and it's worth yeah. knowing about him, yeah. which I think most people don't know about him. And you either. can read, you know, look, the thing with poetry, I, t- I tell people, like, read in any order you want. You don't have to read every, like, right now in my bag, I have Kevin Young's Jelly Roll. I have Ada Limon's Sharks in the Rivers. Um, What is the other? Oh, I have uh, Robin Robertson's Swithering. He's a Scottish poet. And... Look, poems are short. A lot of poems are short. You can read them on the subway. Sometimes I'll just find one I like and reread it many times. And what was I talking about? There was some poem that, oh, the Jane Hirschfield poem that was an influence on how I write. And you, you be, from a creative standpoint, this might be interesting yeah. to you. She has a poem whose title actually escapes me at the moment. But the poem is about dryness in prose, dryness in writing, and how 
you should apply a desiccant, I love that word, to anything you write to dry it out. Um, by which she means the stuff that lasts has a kind of cold, flat, dry, cool quality. Stuff that's really kind of wet and crazy doesn't. And that's at least what she's arguing in this. My first drafts of Hungry were much more effusive, much more influenced by Tom Wolfe, maybe cartoonishly, maybe a little echoing him too much, you know, too many exclamation points and too much like, yay, Noma. And I, I thought a lot about this Jane Hirschfield poem and in the revisions tried to apply that desiccant and dry it out, dry it out. Dry Unadorned, it out. clean prose, which yeah. is available all over your book, is a real gift to the reader. Yeah. Now, I'm a David Foster Wallace fanatic, and that's yeah. the opposite. Uh, but Hemingway is clean, unadorned yeah. prose. And I would say, I don't really talk about this much on the podcast nearly as much as I ought to, but I think my wife is one of the great American novelists, and um, she writes in the most unadorned prose that they're like poems, yeah. As a po- as humanly possible, she writes tiny little books that are, and I've always said to her, it's the curse, but I think it's going to in long in the long run going to be the reward for her because mm-hmm. I believe that when we're in our seventies, um, whatever's going to happen to my work, my senses, <laughs> like my work will just fade into whatever, um, maybe round, <laughs> no. you know, maybe rounders a little because of whatever, but yeah. But but basically, her work I think is only going to gain in stature because enough people have written about it in little ways that it'll exist. Yes, she got a movie made, yeah. so like there's stuff, but it's unadorned prose. It is she's takes all she spends eight years because she takes all the gloss off of the yeah, books. Yeah, there you go. That's and by removing all that gloss, what's left is like this pressurized yeah. thing yeah. that has permanence. Yes, um, and your book. Has but your book still has. Listen, there's plenty of Ken Kesey's hammer in your book. Yeah, I mean that's in. I mean, there's Ken. Renee, we meet Renee. It's we might as well be seeing Kesey with the hammer, right? And it's great. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, In fact, there's something great about it because for someone like me, that that the way that the book reminds me of Kesey in 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 the pranksters. I mean, you do draw the parallel pretty directly in the way that you write about him and his group, all of you in a fucking in a van. van. Well, there is an electric Kool Aid acid test quote in the book. Like, I mean, because I thought, well, let's just make this explicit. You know, I mean, the fact that it's Kesey-ish is good. It's fun. That yes, but but some of the time, look, Tom Wolfe. the single biggest influence on me when I was a young writer was Tom Wolfe. Um, but a lot of his stuff hasn't aged that well, is my thought. You Electric know, the, Kool-Aid stays. Yeah. Electric Kool-Aid is great. The right stuff. stuff. Some stu- some of the right stuff's are, incredible. And yeah. the first hundred pages of A Man in Full. The, just the first, for me, the first hundred pages yeah. of A Man in Full. The horse uh, breeding scene is pretty intense. In the, yeah. I mean, look, a, 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 gene, a brilliant writer. I just think that there, there's a datedness to some of the 60s, 70s stuff. And, and I, so I thought... That drawing it out would maybe create something a little more permanent. Like, I mean, a huge influence on the book was Jeff Dyer. I don't know if you know that writer. He's probably, like, my favorite writer. Tell me the name of the book. Well, he has written many books that are about all different Because I've things. read, I've seen his name recently. Yeah, he, so. what I like about him is that he will write about anything. He has a book called Out of Sheer Rage. I read something by him. Does he write... Does he write short pieces, too? Yeah. I read something about him very recently. He, wrote, he had a beautiful piece in The New Yorker about having a stroke. But, so... He, um, this will lead to a good story. This is why I brought him up. So he's been the biggest influence on me of the last 15 years. And Out of Sheer Rage is a book about his inability to write a book about D.H. Lawrence. He gets all this money to write a scholarly book about D.H. Lawrence, and he can't. And he just spends all the money 
partying and <laughs> and so and then he has a book called but beautiful that's a bunch of sketches of jazz artists that are sort of fictionalized sketches based on his research my point is that every book is extremely different he has another one called um white sands that's all about land i'm art. gonna get started yeah i'm going so i like that he fl- bounces around now here's the thing at a certain point uh early well uh, you know uh late 2017 lauren and i realized she was pregnant with right twins. okay we gotta you know we weren't maybe weren't so careful and but it was good news you know and we had to get married very fast so we went to we both are from southern california we flew to santa barbara where i have some roots and uh, decided to get married at the courthouse, which turned out to be crazy because there had been mudslides and the 101 had been shut down. So it took, I don't want to be like the Californian skit in SNL. I know. I have a lot of connection to Santa Barbara. Oh, I know it well and yeah. I love it. There. So it took a while to get up there. Anyway, the last sort of meal we had before going up to get married, we went to Justa, the Travis Lett place in, in Venice Beach, right? And we went really early, just when it opens, which is the way to do Jew stuff. You're wondering, go like at seven when it opens. Guess who was there? Jeff Dyer. Sick. This is what I'm talking about. I walk in the restaurant and it's empty. And the only people at the table were Jeff Dyer and his wife. And I, and I was like, Lauren, this is a good sign. And I went in up and I was like, are you Jeff Dyer? And he's like, yes, I am. And I was like, okay, we're you're doing. the man. Like, I just got to tell amazing, you. amazing, like, dude. Yeah. It was so... I, it was just before we got married, and I thought, this is a good omen for the book somehow that we just ran into. Amazing. Like, it was just weird. Amazing. Yeah. I sent him the book. He did, I don't think he read it. If I'm, <laughs> I, I'm sure he's going to read it. I, if I, uh, It was a great omen for you. Santa Barbara, though, if I'm in Santa Barbara, I have to go to Superica first. You have I to. I have to get the Chili Reina and, yeah. uh, uh, immediately at Superica. It's basically the only place. I mean, I just want to go there. If I'm in Santa Barbara for a week, I'm going to go there five times. I, You know... I'm so happy to hear you say that. And I'm also happy to hear you point out that it's like the non-taco items are some of the best things on the menu at La Superica. Yeah, the chili reina comes with ta- you know comes with tacos, but it, yes, it's not the typical taco that you would. Yeah, well, they can have stuff that's in like you know they'll have like a chipotle cream sauce, like they'll have enchiladas sometimes. Also, it's I mean it's a it's All a landmark. Right. You and I can Sorry, go I'm on for this. No, this is awesome. You're the guest. I I want to ask one other question of you, and then. And we'll do a part two at some point because oh, sure. uh, it's great talking to you about this stuff. We can do one just about music. What? Yes. What <laughs> um, can uh, – well, we got to have a dinner where we talk music with Pete. Um, what do you think a regular person can do, your average person, to be able to really explore great restaurants and to get treated oh. – to eventually become a regular at one, to get treated oh. well? How, how does somebody – you know, you and I are both in a rarefied places for different reasons. Like, you've written about food your whole life. I sort of have also in a different way. Yeah, of course. We're both... You're one of the great food writers. Thank you. Yeah. We're both <laughs> friends with um, many chefs. We both are able to... You know, one of the incredible joys of my life and, and a thing that's added value. And I love to be able to do for my friends, which you did for me. But I do what you do, which is I'll... If, if I know you and you're in my world and you're going to go somewhere... I'm going to help you go eat at the best restaurant. I'm going to make sure that you're not waiting too long and they're going to put a nice extra dish on. I'm going to, I love it. I love sharing that with people. Yeah. But most people, it's so daunting, dude. Yeah, I don't understand Going out to a new place and then not knowing how they're going to be treated. And then also, how do you like, you know, how does somebody, do you think, get to be, you know, 
hand, taken care of nicely at a, a great place? And how should they explore? Like, what do you tell friends of yours if they're interested in that? Hmm. I think that it's always essential to remember that the people who work at restaurants are people and that you should think of yourself as a guest in their home. That's how I think of it. Like I, I, I just think of myself as a customer. I don't expect any special treatment. In fact, like I'll send people to Via Carota all the time. I've probably sent thousands of people there actually at this point. <laughs> and it's long, it has a long wait now. If you go at seven on a Saturday, it's going to be impossible. A friend of mine said there was a four hour wait recently. The thing to do with a restaurant like that is go at an off hour. Just wander in at four in an afternoon, like a rainy day like this, and sit at the bar and really talk to the people serving you. Get to know them. The people who work at Via Carota, for instance, are just wonderful personalities. They all have incredible, cool stories. Ask questions about the menu. Be inquisitive. Be um, attentive, you know. And a lot of times the chefs... We may think of them, you and I, as stars or sort of distant. I mean, they're often just Rita, Sodi, Jody Williams. They're often just there in the kitchen. You might say after you, you know, had a conversation, can I just, I loved my meal. I'd like to say thank you. I'll, you know, can I tell That's you? Great. Can I tell you a weird thing I do all the time? Like, um, I send out postcards. Uh, the other thing I have in my bag is um, pre-stamped postcards. Um, like, I have scores of them. And um, I write probably five or ten a day as like a writing exercise so if i've had a really beautiful meal i'll just write them a postcard thanking them and send it and like an actual mail postcard you know <laughs> not an email or an instagram and um i find that people really like that touch i have a friend from virginia that's a great tip yeah you know like this friend of mine uh, from virginia when she goes to a restaurant she will sometimes um say you know, I know I know you're booked, but she'll leave like a, a handwritten note. Like, I know you're booked, but I've heard so much about Sambar, and I just want to have the experience while I'm visiting. And um, guess what? It works. Like, when the, oftentimes there will be a text. I've heard this from various friends. If you just go in a, a, in person and say, you know, I know you're booked. I'd love to have this experience. I'm here for a few days. Yeah, if something opens up, here's my, you know, give me give me a shout because I know there's sometimes cancellations. It's all about respect and kindness, just like anything, a lot you know? of, and not being like not lording it over people. Yes, I it drives me crazy. I go in so respectfully. I agree. every word you just said is true. I found that the way before, the way that early on in my life I was able to sort of like get to go to restaurants before I had done work that maybe made people interested in meeting me too. Yeah. Was going and asking questions and being yeah. nice about the whole thing and never expecting anything. Going right. in a, hey, I'm in your house. This is wonderful. Exactly. Thank you. And people see you enjoy, people see a joy on your face and that you're not holding back. Yeah. They respond to it. Hey, Jeff. So, and the other thing, can I just say quickly? Yes. Leave huge tips. Yes. Uh, Excessive gotta. tips. Don't do that. <laughs> I mean it. I do. Yes. I'm a, a nice tipper. Yeah, you have to. Hey, man, listen. Um, I, I figured we'd talk a lot more about Renee, but I, it's all, I, I but, it's all good. But I'm happy to do this, and and maybe together we can help get Renee on this podcast when he oh, comes yeah. back to New York sometime and talk about this in the book. But that'd be great. But dude, um, I love the book, and Thank I you. want people so to read it, and I want you to get everything you deserve, which is a ton of great stuff when the book comes out. Well, I hope I get uh, more than Jeff Gordonier. You can his, his Instagram <laughs> is really fun. Follow so follow. Are you do, you do Twitter or you don't? I hate Twitter. I, 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 I love Twitter. Don't find him there. You can find me at Brian Koppelman. You can find Jeff 
on Instagram. It's a good Instagram account. Go get his book. Um, listen to The Clash. Open a bottle of something great and, and, and read the book in a night as I did. All right. Thank thanks you. a lot, everybody. See you next time. Oh, you can write me to momentbk at gmail.com if you have anything you want to tell me. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.